0: OK, so I, uh, I'm going to record this lecture. So I'll post it uh, later tonight so you guys can have it for, uh, for your study purposes. Uh, as you can probably tell, I'm not at 100%. I'm recording it today as opposed to Tuesday because it was much, much worse on Tuesday. My son brought some plague home from daycare. Uh, so I obviously can't get to the right the normal volume, so please don't make me yell. Okay, But if you can't hear me, make, just make sure I repeat myself. You need me to. Um, so again we're going to cover the, la- the rest of the cardiovascular system today. Uh, it shouldn't take terribly long. And then we'll do our exam review. Uh, quick little discussion on the exam. Um, you should know what to expect by now but it's exactly twice as long as what you've been getting for your unit tests. So it's at, the, it's at 6 o'clock next week, <coughs> excuse me, uh, two hours, uh, 100 multiple choice questions. The breakdown is approximately um, 45 questions on cardiovascular and 55 questions on uh, review, so material that from units that we've seen before. Right, yeah? Did you say it was two hours? Two hours, yeah. Okay, same format as everything else, it's all multiple choice, there's no any kind of other format, there's no pictures, there's no short answers, there's none of that. All right, good, good. <clears throat> okay, so where we left off was just prior to this, right? Mm-hmm. Inflammation, infection of the heart, <clears throat> So the big one that we're going to talk about off the top is what's called rheumatic fever and the consequence as it relates to the cardiovascular system, which is rheumatic heart disease. So rheumatic fever uh, is, is something that can occur uh, after a strep infection. Okay, so it's typically um, a particular kind of organism. Uh, it's called a beta hemolytic streptococcus. So it's a form of strep bacteria. Um, this is one of the kinds of bacteria that you can get strep throat, right? It, it, so a lot of people get strep throat. A small minority of those people will, may end up with rheumatic fever. So what happens is, the strep infection runs its course, and for the most part, those that are going to develop rheumatic fever tend to be those people who uh, were treated late or inadequately, right? So let's say they didn't get, they didn't seek treatment properly, or they didn't run the full course of antibiotics, or something of that nature. As far as we know, um, so the strep infection runs its course, it's done, uh, and then. About two to four weeks later, um, they develop this secondary uh, effect, and that is called rheumatic fever. And so in rheumatic fever, um, you get all these, uh, what happens is, sorry, um, there is a systemic inflammatory reaction uh, that involves the antigens from the strep infection that happened a few weeks ago, and the body's antibodies that they've made. And the antibody-antigen complexes can deposit themselves in tissues and cause inflammatory damage. So the immune system gets in there and causes further inflammatory damage. So the concern here is, um, uh, well, first, it's called uh, rheumatic fever or rheumatic heart disease because it affects joints. So it particularly affects large joints, like the, uh, most often the hips, knees, shoulders. It can affect other joints as well, but most often it's the big ones. And so you're talking inflammatory damage. Um, the, there are sometimes long-term consequences to that as in if there's a significant amount of damage done to, uh, When they're in the throes of the rheumatic fever then they can have long-term consequences But not necessarily always the case and sorry before I go any further the the patient population You're typically looking at here is children. So most typically is in kids between 5 and 15 years old Okay, but you can have long-term consequences for the rest of your life and particularly relating to um, the effects on the heart all right. Um, so the problem with the heart is it can affect any of the three layers of the hearts. Okay. So what are the three layers of the heart again? The inside is the endocardium, right? The big thick muscle layer is the myocardium, and the outer layer is the pericardium. Pericardium. Okay. Good. So, uh, rheumatic heart disease can affect all three of those layers and it will affect them differently. Uh, you said the effects will be different depending on what layer is affected. So, um, (coughs) the most typical long-term consequences involve the uh, endocarditis. So, inflammation of the inner layer of the heart. (coughs) And if you remember our discussion from before, the uh, endocardium (coughs) is continuous with the valves in the heart. And so if you get, um, if you get these uh, um, immune complexes deposited uh, on the valves and there's an inflammatory reaction and there is um, damage to the valves, the long-term consequence is incompetence. So the valves can become incompetent so that they don't close properly the way they should. Uh, and again, that would have long-term consequences like the ones that we would have discussed last week. And one of those things is it can lead to eventual congestive heart failure because you have an inefficiency of the heart as it's it's, uh, pumping blood and you don't have that valve closing and and preventing backflow the way that it should. All right, Um, (laughs) if you affect the uh, myocardium, so the actual muscular layer of the heart, you would have different effects. Um, Any guesses as to what that might be? Remember, the myocardium is the the muscle layer, it's also the part of the heart that is electrically active. That's where the the, uh, electrical system of the heart runs and so you can develop certain types of dysrhythmia, okay? And the pericardium, pericardium, (coughs) we're actually gonna discuss pericarditis uh, in a few slides, Uh, but um, there can be short-term effects involving um, inflammation and edema, uh, or there can be long-term effects involving um, scar tissue and and impaired um, um, impaired, uh, movement of the heart within the pericardium, so we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit later. Um, so let's go back for a quick sec to, the, uh, to the, the effects on the rest of the body. So again, it's called rheumatic heart disease because again, it affects not only the heart but the joints. So I said large joints, inflammatory damage, um, depending on the extent of the damage, there can be long-term uh, consequences to the joint function, but not in every case. Um, one of the other effects, uh, one of the things you might see, um, that in that early stage, the two to four weeks after the original strep infection, is something called erythema marginatum. Pink rash on the on your trunk? Anything? Yep, exactly. <coughs> so it's a pink rash. <coughs> it usually looks, uh, it often looks circular-ish, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, but it's this kind of pink rash uh, that's non-itchy that shows up on, the, on most often the trunk, but it can be on the limbs as well. Okay, so it comes and it goes, but that, it, that there is one of the hallmark indicators uh, several weeks after that, that person has developed rheumatic fever. All right, <coughs> All right. so um, in, in rare cases and, and uh, somewhat extreme cases, you can also get um, neurological effects. Uh, so it says here uh, involuntary jerky movements of the face, arms, uh, legs. Uh, the term for that, you don't have to write this down, but it's called chorea, C-H-O-R-E-A. Uh, there are other types of chorea as well, but what they refer to is, is that. So it's this kind of rhythmic involuntary movement, it kind of like a, a tick-like movement um, of the face or head or, or limbs. That's not in most cases. The most typical effects are those mm. of the joints and of the heart. Okay? So <laughs> while they're in this, um, it, it, uh, will, it, will they have rheumatic fever? They're going to have a fever, shockingly. Um, it's not terribly high. It's usually kind of a low-grade fever. Um, the, all the other signs of something going on, some kind of an infection or a disorder, so malaise, anorexia, fatigue. Um, if there are significant effects on the heart and its function is compromised, then tachycardia, as a, our body's typical response to inefficiency, makes sense. If you were to pull their blood, you would, of course, see leukocytosis uh, because there's inflammation going on. But again, that by itself doesn't tell us anything specific. <clears throat> if you wanted to specifically diagnose this, of course, history would be important. It'd be that previous strep infection several weeks prior. If they have that, that rash, that would really, really easily clue you in. But in addition to that, you'd want to see what the effects on the heart are. Uh, so amongst other things, you might, you might be looking at an echocardiogram or an ECG. So the ECG might show altered, um, uh, altered function of the, of the heart. Uh, if it has been affected in that way, um, one of the other tests that will be done is a blood test. It's called an ASO titer, and any titer test you're looking at the presence of something, usually an antigen in the blood. In this case, ASO stands for anti-streptolysin O, It basically means it's something that gets found in your bu- in your blood after a strep infection. So it, it would indicate the it would it would essentially confirm the previous strep infection and really indicate that this is the likely the diagnosis. So um, (laughs) in the moment with the rheumatic fever, the rheumatic fever part of this, when it starts affecting the heart and the joints, that's no longer an infection, right? It's not the active infection. The infection was weeks ago. So what we have now is a secondary Uh, It's not technically autoimmune, but it's it's kind of in the same ballpark. It's an immune type response, where you get this this, uh, inflammation in several different parts of the body. So the the acute treatment for that is anti-inflammatories. So you're trying to manage the inflammation and and minimize the damage of that secondary response. Okay, so again on 85, Here's your your flow chart of of the the events that would would occur. The original strep infection, body creates antibodies as you would expect. Um, Several weeks later, you have the uh, antibody antigen reaction. It goes after tissues of the body. We can have the various effects, the myocarditis affecting the muscle itself, which could lead to arrhythmia, the pericarditis, which could lead to swelling in the pericardial space, uh, and the endocarditis and the valve damage. Okay, so again, the, uh, the long-term effects are typically later on down the road with the valve damage, it's, it's years later, uh, but as we saw last week, that incompetent valve would be a risk for future development of congestive heart failure. Okay, <clears throat> any questions about that? All right, so is it an active infection? No, it's a secondary problem that occurs several weeks after infection due to the response of the immune system very good <clears throat> okay um, now there are other ways that you can develop endocarditis uh, and basically what you're looking at is bacteria has gotten into the bloodstream uh, and if bacteria gets into the blood it's going to travel all throughout the body um, and it tends to be able to attach itself to um, things that are prominent in projections that stick out like valves So bacteria is known to essentially, uh, when it gets through the bloodstream to the heart, to start latching onto valves and causing um, inflammatory damage to valves, which would lead to similar kind of consequences in the long term as far as um, valve incompetence and eventual potential congestive heart failure. Uh, In the short term, there are some other consequences as well. It does depend on the the significance of the infection. So there are, um, acute forms of endocarditis where you have a much higher fever and more co- more consequential systemic findings. Uh, there are also kind of lower grade what we call subacute infections. I'm not gonna ask you with the species on those, okay, you don't need to know strep viridian, staph aureus, but there are a few different types of bacteria that can do this. The, the common theme is some kind of bacteria gets into the blood. So this can happen um, idiopathically Right? It can occur, a bacteria works its way into the blood, but there is a particular risk factor for this, um, and you tend to see it in uh, IV drug users. So people that, which makes sense, right? people that are uh, inserting something into their blood, and if, especially if there's needle sharing or you know, they're reusing a needle and it's not sterile, uh, which does happen, uh, then they're introducing bacteria potentially into the bloodstream, and one of the consequences <coughs> is endocarditis. Okay? So um, during endocarditis, again, it, it uh, the diff- it, there will be differences in severity. So subacute which is acute, but with both of them, you're likely to have a fever. You you have bacteremia, so bacteria presence in the blood. So fever, uh, fatigue, anorexia, malaise, all the you know the signs we've seen over and over and over that indicate some kind of infection or or something going on in the body. Um, in some of the more acute, severe cases. Uh, can develop congestive heart failure, as I mentioned, also enlargement of the spleen, splenomegaly. Um, the, the major difference between, uh, between the acute and the subacute form is that in the acute form, you're gonna have a much higher uh, fever spike as opposed to the subacute form. So if this is, uh, if this is con- it, it, clinically, um, it's gonna be infection, right? Um, what, what's gonna happen is you're gonna draw blood and the presence of bacteria in the blood will be found. Um, at that point, um, based on the clinical presentation, you might suspect there's effects on the heart, so you would be doing heart testing to see the extent of that. In the meantime, the treatment, because it's bacteremia, because it's bacteria already in the bloodstream, uh, treatment's going to be fairly aggressive, antibiotic treatment um, via IV, okay? Usually for weeks at a time, as opposed to a week, okay? It's a significant infection that you want to manage as quickly as possible. Any questions about that? Okay. Some similar effects to what you might see in some cases of, of uh, rheumatic heart disease with the endocarditis. <clears throat> and lastly, pericarditis. So again, we saw this as a potential effect in rheumatic heart disease, um, but there are of course lots of other ways that you can uh, that you can get pericarditis. Broadly, it means that there's been inflammation to the pericardium. So. Remember what the pericardium is, approximately. Right, It's a double-layered serous membrane with a thin amount of fluid that surrounds the heart, and it's got this other layer outside of it. Right? The fibrous pericardial sac, that's the most uh, external layer that does not stretch very well. That's kind of the key anatomical um, thing to remember here. So the problem is uh, if you develop pericarditis, inflammation of the pericardium, then what do you expect is gonna happen? What do you expect to happen in any tissue of the body where there is an itis? Inflammation, Inflammation so edema, okay? And so, again, the, the, uh, the anatomical consequence here is that if you start accumulating edema in the pericardium, okay, edema is fluid. Fluid does not compress, and you have it now inside of a fibrous sac that doesn't stretch very well. It can, it can stretch a little bit, but not a lot. Uh, Especially if you start filling it up really quickly, so what is going to bear the brunt of that now occupied space? The heart heart itself exactly so the heart is muscle, and it's hollow, and it will compress So if you start developing or accumulating fluid in the pericardium and the sac that's holding it in doesn't stretch It's gonna start encroaching on the heart itself so compressing inward towards the heart and potentially impairing uh, it's the heart's ability to relax will impair the diastole, as the heart normally relaxes and expands. So, um, again, there's, there's a spectrum of, of severity for, for pericarditis. Um, you could have a little bit of edema, or you could have a rapidly accumulating uh, amount of edema. If that occurs, and you start really um, um, cumulatively accumulating uh, a fluid, and it's encroaching on the heart's ability to contract, Uh, The term for that is something different. It's called cardiac tamponade. It's not in your notes. Okay, so in severe cases of pericarditis, that is a possibility. (coughs) Alright, so what are we talking about? What can cause this? Well, anything that can cause inflammation. And what causes inflammation? Tissue damage. Tissue damage. Okay, so um, it could be anything. We actually kind of referred to uh, um, the possi- this possibility last week with a myocardial infarction. So somebody has a heart attack, heart attack, there is inflammatory damage, right? You have tissue damage, you have tissue necrosis potentially, um, and the inflammation is right in the area that could cause swelling in the pericardium. Um, rheumatic fever, of course, we saw that uh, earlier. Um, you could have cancer, um, you could have direct trauma, and that would include surgery. So if somebody has open heart surgery. You have to open up the pericardium to get at the heart. So that is, of course, right. That's of course a direct insult to the to the pericardium. Um, viral infection could do it as well. And uh, lupus, okay, SLE, systemic lupus erythematosus. Does anybody remember anything about lupus? What it is? Yeah. So we call that it's an autoimmune disorder. Good. And what tissues does lupus? generally attack. Uh, connective tissue, but where? Mm-hmm. Everywhere, yeah. Lupus is notoriously hard to diagnose because um, theres it's not like uh, other autoimmune disorders where you have one that just affects the thyroid gland or it just affects this part of the body. It, uh, can, af- it can affect a widespread variety of tissues throughout the body. So it could be blood vessels, it could be the heart, it could be muscle, it could be a ton of other different things. Okay? And obviously one of those things is pericardium that's on the list. Okay? So if that's occurring and you're developing a, an accumulation of fluid in the pericardial space and it is, uh, causing an, is causing an inability for the heart to normally relax of its diastolic phase, um, you're going to get congestive heart failure-like findings because you're gonna start getting a backlogging of blood. Does that make sense? If, if, you're, if the heart can't expand properly, take in the blood it's supposed to, and therefore eject it, blood's still coming into the heart, so it's gonna start backing up. So one of the things you'll start to see is similar to that right-sided CHF that we discussed earlier, uh, distension of the veins in the neck, right? The anatomical link there is your back flowing blood into the in that case superior vena cava because it's immediately connected to the right side of the or the right atrium and it's backing up blood into the jugular veins all right Uh, if you were to listen to the heart with a stethoscope um, it would be muffled it the heart sounds would be fainter because there's now this fluid that's occupying space and, and muffling the sound (laughs) Alright, so again with this picture here on 89, um, depending on severity, if you start to develop this significant fluid accumulation and a cardiac tamponade, then you're going to see all sorts of forward effects and backward effects similar to the uh, congestive heart failure stuff, although more acutely. So all of a sudden in a shorter time frame uh, than with something like CHF, you would now have a significant decrease in output to the body and you would have a backflow uh, back of blood, so both into the veins uh, um, systemically and into the lungs causing pulmonary edema, so you get signs of all those things all at once very rapidly. Make sense? Yeah, go, right. and go for it. I have a forward. question, my, my boyfriend has pericarditis. Yeah. So you can hear <coughs> her like, without a stethoscope, like this close. Okay. Not necessarily. So, so here's so it's a it's a good question because the next slide here, slide ninety, is about chronic pericarditis. I'm going to go out on the limb and assume that's what he has. Not. Yeah, like he, he said, he was on the transplant list. Okay. But he took himself off because he's getting better. So I don't know if that's actually accurate. <laughs> <but> uh, <clears throat> I know I wouldn't, <laughs> but uh, uh, so. So you're you're right in that um, in most cases uh, with these chronic cardiac problems the the cumulative effect often trends towards things like congestive heart failure so um, so the the eventual prognosis is well put it this way if he's on the transplant list there is a reason all right so you don't generally put people on that list if the heart is going to spontaneously get better. So um, now it's it's a good point, uh, a good kind of point, uh, place to make this point, in that what we had been just talking about was more acute pericarditis, where you have obvious swelling and inflammation. Now, um, somebody gets acute pericarditis, and it's significant enough uh, to cause um, fibrotic scar tissue and adhesions. Then a person can develop chronic (laughs) pericarditis. It could resolve itself in the acute phase, but if it if it uh, follows into the chronic phase and often that tends to be either not getting better or progressively slowly getting worse. So what's happening in that case is you've caused inflammatory damage substantial enough to cause um, fibrotic scar tissue, and now you have this real thickening of the pericardium and impairment of the heart to expand. So it does tend to lead to things like CHF eventually. All right, Um, I'm not sure if I, on that list or not um, but something else that can lead to pericarditis as well before we move on uh, is uh, radiation so <clears throat> can you think of any reasons why someone would be exposed to significant radiation in the chest uh, wouldn't be enough I'm talking more more substantial um, uh, um, cardiography is the the imaging uh, It's really it's a, a few x-rays it's not a, it's not a significant I mean, any radiation is, is, is ionizing radiation. It's a dosage of something. But um, I'm looking for more significant doses. Yeah? Lung cancer. And, right, exactly. So somebody has thoracic cancer of some kind. They have breast cancer. They have lung cancer. They have something going on here that requires radiation therapy. And as we talked about in previous classes, <clears throat> does radiation therapy target cancer cells? Sorry. Not really. Not really, right? It causes damage to whatever it passes through, and that means there can be consequences to the healthy tissue that the radiation is passing through, especially if it's done re- repeatedly, which it often is, right? You get multiple rounds of radiation therapy. So, if you have a thoracic, uh, um, a thoracic cancer like breast cancer or lung cancer that's being irradiated, potential long-term consequence would be chronic paracarditis. All right. Oh. <clears throat> uh, forgot to mention that. It could also happen, uh, the chronic type and in the, in the scar tissue buildup uh, due to um, tuberculosis. So tuberculosis is an infection in the lungs, which we'll discuss in a lot more detail in uh, the first unit of Patho 2, uh, but it can cause um, inflammatory damage and, and scarring of the pericardium as well. All right, all right, that's it for the heart. Moving on to the vessels. So our last couple uh, subunits are, uh, we're gonna talk about some arterial stuff and we're gonna talk about some venous stuff. Then we're done. (laughs) And a lot of this, quite frankly, is also uh, repetition. It's stuff that we've already talked about in the last two weeks. Uh, Like this one. We've talked about hypertension a bunch already, yes? Okay, so let's, let's make sure we're all, on the same page here, okay. hypertension is, of course means high blood pressure, it's a common thing you're going to see it all the time, it's a very common comorbidity, uh, it does tend to of course be more prevalent in your older patients, they have had longer, uh, more time to accumulate the kinds of things that lead to hypertension but of course it can happen in younger people as well depending on individual differences. Um, it can be classified as either systolic or diastolic hypertension. We are not going to make that distinction in our class. We are going to say that um, the, when you generally talk about hypertension, primary hypertension, you're talking about essential hypertension, which means hypertension that develops over time. There are causes, um, but the comparison here is primary hypertension that develops over time. It's multifactorial, potentially, compared with this next slide, secondary hypertension. So secondary hypertension means it's high blood pressure, but it's secondary to an identifiable cause. So it's a, in, that, in that case, uh, it's a kidney disorder, it's an endocrine disorder, that is directly causing the hypertension. And if you, in theory, manage that cause, you can reduce the hypertension. So we're gonna talk about the, first, the, the basic type first. There are essential primary hypertension that develops multifactorily over time. So let's put a number on it, okay, to diagnose hypertension. It is um, a systolic blood pressure above 140 or a diastolic blood pressure above 90, or both. Okay. Does that mean you show up to your doc for your yearly physical, take your blood pressure, and say, ah, you are uh, 145 over 80. Do you slap a diagnosis of hypertension on? Of course not, okay? This is a repeated measurement um, it's multiple times uh, over the course of usually several months. If you get repeated measurements that are above these numbers, then you can start to diagnose that as, as hypertension, okay? You guys are of course familiar with white coat hypertension, right? So this happens to people all the time. Um, it's a temporary thing. It's just the nature of being in, a, being in a medical facility. People get anxious and their blood pressure goes up, okay? Same thing if people come into, people come into uh, a hospital you take, your, take their vitals, including blood pressure, and it's a super important thing to do. But understand that people are anxious, they're in pain, they're, you know, they're, they're stressed, their blood pressure is likely to be much higher than it would normally be anyway. All right, <clears throat> so, how do you get hypertension? Not one answer. Let's start, now I want to hear some possibilities of what can lead to this, because we've talked about a bunch of them. Okay. And what about it? Um, It can cause um, complications like uh, arteriosclerosis. Perfect. Good. That's a very good start, okay? So uh, for a a number of reasons over time, let's say you have uh, a poor diet, let's say, let's not slap a particular diet on it, let's say you have a a, a fairly inflammatory diet, or you have a sedentary lifestyle, uh, or you are Mm -hmm. just getting older, as this stuff does happen over time. You develop arteriosclerosis so what exactly does that mean what's happening in the arteries um, they are they are relatively narrowing but but the real the real definition would be that they are hardening and so when they're hardening they're not necessarily getting narrower but they're not expanding so when blood vessels get pulses of blood through them they're elastic they're supposed to be able to stretch to accommodate those pulses of blood that's how you feel a pulse, you're feeling the, the bounding, the stretching of that vessel as it's pass, the blood's passing through. So if uh, blood vessels start to stiffen up due to accumulated damage and they're not stretching and complying with pulses of blood, then the pressure within those vessels is gonna start climbing, right? And the ironic part about this, as we're gonna get into in a slide or two, is that, as I mentioned uh, last week, I think, high blood pressure is a stimulus for arteriosclerosis so because the blood pressure is consistently high it causes more damage to the inner lining of blood vessels so you start with damage to blood vessels they stiffen up blood pressure goes up blood pressure is now up so it causes more damage So, they get stiffer and on and on we go so that's one of the reasons why you want to manage hypertension earlier on because it does tend to get worse as time goes on and there are other reasons for that as well do you have a question Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> good. So that's another good uh, good example. Something that can lead to arteriosclerosis and atherosclerosis is diabetes. Okay. So chronically elevated blood glucose and inflammatory condition in the blood uh, can lead to, to damage in, in the inner lining of blood vessels. On that on that note, on that theme, what else that I've been just droning on about for 12 weeks? Yeah. That would be a good one. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> so. Same thing, inflammatory damage to blood vessels, causes hardening, causes maybe some atheroma formation, and now we're creating um, hypertension. Also, anything that causes um, vasoconstriction. So do we know of anything that can cause vasoconstriction? We had an entire unit on it, it was about 11 slides long. Good, right, Mm -hmm. stress. So if somebody is chronically stressed or has um, you know, uh, um, uh, another disorder that, that, uh, that, c- uh, that elevates their stress in, in a, in a long term manner, there will be this neurological effect of vasoconstriction, which increases blood pressure, which, if it's sustained for long enough periods of time, continues that cycle of damage to arteries and increased blood pressure. Okay? Uh, yeah there's a relationship between uh, high salt diets and uh, and hypertension for sure that's one of the things that's often managed um, uh, with diet for somebody you're trying to bring the hypertension down good those are all very good answers is exactly what I was looking for okay um, so <laughs> that was all primary hypertension I said our secondary hypertension excuse me <coughs> means that there is an identifiable uh, secondary co- or cause of hypertension so um, a good example uh, that we've talked about a few times previously would be kidney disease. So remember that the kidneys, their job is to filter blood and create urine and concentrate that urine with waste products. But as we've been, as we've been talking about, every drop of urine that you make was blood plasma. right? So if you have developing kidney disease, <coughs> your GFR, your glomerular filtration rate, the rate at which your kidneys process blood and create urine, filter it, declines. Okay, So what's going to happen to blood pressure? It's going to go up. All right, so kidney disease is known to increase blood pressure. And as we're going to see in this, uh, this next slide ahead, um, that also means that there's a secondary mechanism to that where we've mentioned this a few times already this semester, I'm certain of it, that When there is hypertension, there's narrowed blood vessels um, that occurs in all corners of the body, including to the kidneys. So say you already have hypertension, you have some vasoconstriction throughout the body, that includes to the arteries, er, excuse me, to the kidneys. So now the kidneys are getting this decreased blood flow. They they detect, they uh, interpret that in a way that makes them set off the RAS system the renin angiotensin aldosterone system so the effect of that is increased blood pressure so again this is the kind of thing you want to manage early because it gets worse and worse uh, another possibility that could lead to <coughs> secondary hypertension a good one is a pheochromocytoma a pheochromocytoma is a benign tumor of the middle of the med- uh, of the uh, adrenal gland the adrenal medulla do we know or do we remember what is made in the adrenal medulla? No, it's a good guess, but it's not cortisol. That's made in the cortex. It's a good guess, though. Sorry? Also an excellent guess. It's not aldosterone. Also in the cortex. What else do we know that's made in the adrenal gland? I'll give you a hint. This is the part of the adrenal gland that's directly connected to the sympathetic nervous system. Oh. Epinephrine. epinephrine and norepinephrine, exactly. Okay, our catecholamines, so our catecholamine hormones, uh, that are responsible for the stress response, the fight or flight response. <coughs> um, if you have a um, a tumor, a hypersecreting tumor of the adrenal gland, uh, then it's going to start pumping out epinephrine and norepinephrine, and that is going to do what to the blood pressure it's It's going to increase it due to vasoconstriction. vasoconstriction exactly exactly right so now that would be an identifiable and in theory modifiable cause of hypertension so in theory you excise that tumor right you take out that pheochromocytoma and that effect diminishes so that's what i mean when i say secondary hypertension it's an identifiable and and potentially manageable cause of hypertension. Okay. While we're on definitions, uh, malignant hypertension means somebody is developing hypertension rapidly and it is escalating. So it's getting worse and worse, and it's not responding to your medications. It's not responding to any of the therapies. It's becoming uh, um, a a significant complication. Uh, And we'll see in a bit why uh, um, escalating blood pressure can potentially be a very, very big problem. Because okay? there, um, there are long-term consequences to elevating blood pressure, uh, and there are short-term consequences, uh, especially when you're talking about things like bleeds or, uh, or damage um, or rupturing of an aneurysm or something like that. So back that up a step. Our slide here, 95, uh, it's showing uh, what I've been talking about in the relationship between high blood pressure and more high blood pressure. Okay, so um, let's say you have um, vasoconstriction. Okay, so let's start up at the top here. You have vasoconstriction, so for some reason you have um, systemically, uh, um, uh, systemic vasoconstriction. Um, that is uh, potentially the cause of the hypertension in the first place, but because of that vasoconstriction, uh, we're gonna decrease the blood flow to the kidney, okay? Now, as I mentioned, other things that can do the same kind of thing, decreasing blood flow to the kidney, are kidney damage, so uh, either uh, through uh, diabetes, called diabetic nephropathy, or through your run-of-the-mill nephrosclerosis. So there are a bunch of things that can cause nephrosclerosis. This is a whole topic that we have in, in Patho 2. Um, but it's the, the, the brief explanation is it's something that's causing damage to the blood vessels of the kidney itself. Okay, so again, all this is interpreted by the kidney as decreased blood flow, which means you kick off the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. I don't have to draw that on the board, right? Right? Thank you, (laughs) okay? And then the end result of that is, of course, we increase blood pressure. Now, um, the next couple of slides talk about the the effects of hypertension, but they are kind of quickly summarized on this slide too. Um, And it tends to affect, um, uh, it it does, it, it can affect both, large and small blood vessels, some of the more immediate effects that we see are to the small blood vessels, like the ones that supply the retina, for example. So you have tiny little blood vessels that, uh, that supply the retina with blood, and if you, ca- if you cause damage to those blood vessels through uh, sustained hypertension, then you're gonna impair the blood flow through those vessels and impair blood flow, delivery to the retina. What's the consequence of that gonna be? Blind. Blindness. What yeah. No, that's it's uh, very much related to this. Yeah. There's an, there are other causes of blindness in diabetics as well. You can develop cataracts by having elevated blood glucose, um, but uh, that's different. I mean, cataracts can be surgically managed. Uh, this can't, so uh, this can definitely cause blindness in the long term. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it can cause further damage to blood vessels. So the high blood pressure by itself can lead to things like arteriosclerosis and atherosclerosis. What's the problem with that? It causes more more hypertension, good. But then you also have the local effects of of wherever the atherosclerosis is present. So we've seen a few examples of that already. We talked about it in the heart, okay? We talked about um, angina uh, with partial occlusions or myocardial infarction with complete occlusions. The most common cause of myocardial infarction is developing atherosclerosis, eventual complete occlusion of blood vessels, okay? So again, remember that that doesn't happen just in the hearts, that happens everywhere, okay? That happens to the brain, so you can develop occlusive, uh, um, occlus- occlusions to the, the vessels of the brain, so we call that an occlusive stroke. And that can also occur in the extremities. Okay? That's one of the things we're gonna talk about shortly peripheral vascular disease so the effects on the limbs for example when you when you uh, occlude blood flow to them due to progressively narrowing vessels due to atherosclerosis okay the other consequence again is (coughs) as you have sustained high blood pressure the left side of the heart in particular has to work hard to overcome that so if you have increased pressure in the arterial system the left side of the heart has to work to overcome that pressure. And the chronic increase in the demand on the left side of the heart means it's going to hypertrophy. It's going to get thicker because it's a muscle. So it's working harder. It has to pump against that resistance. And as we talked about last week, if you have the thickening of that chamber of the heart, you're going to eventually get issues with blood flow in and blood flow out. And we call that congestive heart failure. OK? So I said last week that hypertension is the kind of, uh, is the, is the kind of um, stimulus that can lead, in particular, to that left-sided congestive heart failure. And what kind, of, uh, what kind of congestion effects do we expect with left-sided congestive heart failure? Where does the blood end up? This is our Kahoot question from earlier. In the lungs. In the lungs. Exactly. Very good. OK. <clears throat> Moving on, so, um, the places in the body that are most typically damaged by hypertension, uh, again, we're talking by uh, um, damaging the blood vessels that supply these tissues, uh, tissues that have little blood vessels, like the retina, like the kidneys, and then also, to the spots that are most typically, um, uh, the the ones that you're gonna see substantial problems with as you develop this damage and atherosclerosis, associated with hypertension, the heart, and the brain. So I'm gonna skip to this picture and then go back on 97. Quick summary of the various different parts of the body that might be affected, and it's all over, okay? So I said the eyes with retinopathy, the brain uh, with either, um, uh, (coughs) sorry. There's a few things that could happen with the brain. Uh, One is the, um, we talked about the atherosclerosis, if you're causing progressive damage to the arteries and you get the fatty atheroma plaque buildup, then you can cause occlusion of blood vessels. That would be one type of stroke, an occlusive stroke. You stop blood getting to the tissue. You can also have the other kind of stroke, a hemorrhagic stroke. So a hemorrhagic stroke is a bleed. So how does a bleed occur? A blood vessel bursts. What's the biggest Risk factor for to, for bursting a blood vessel: high blood pressure. Okay, so if you have a vulnerable vessel that's maybe weakened in some way, you have sustained high blood pressure. It can burst that vessel, and that could happen anywhere in the body. But if it happens in the brain, it can be catastrophic right? because you're causing um, that blood vessel that bursts. You're now not supplying the tissue that it was supposed to be supplying with blood. Right, and as we we know. Uh, brain tissue needs its blood supply. If, you get, if, you, um, if a brain tissue, if brain tissue is ischemic for five minutes or longer, then you're causing permanent neurological damage. Um, <clears throat> beyond that, with a hemorrhagic stroke, again, we'll discuss this stuff in Patho 2 as well, but um, you also have uh, another whole host of consequences, because now you're causing a bleed into the brain. So you're you're pumping blood out of a broken blood vessel into the skull, which doesn't expand. Kind of a similar analogy to when we talked about the um, cardiac tamponade in the heart, right? You're pumping fluid into something that doesn't stretch and it's compressing on, in that case, the heart. In this case, you're pumping blood through a burst vessel into a skull that doesn't stretch and it's compressing the brain. So of the two types of strokes, one that's often more imminently fatal is the hemorrhagic type, okay? Um, <clears throat> that can also lead to, both lead to and exacerbate aneurysms. That's the topic we're gonna get to shortly, okay? So an aneurysm is a, uh, a weakened blood vessel. So you have a, a, the wall of a blood vessel through the muscular layer, the tunica media. Um, there's a weakening and you get a bulging. So it kind of bulges out the sides. We'll show there's a few different types. Um, So the sustained high blood pressure can do two things. One, it can lead to aneurysm formation. So high blood pressure can weaken the wall of an artery and cause an aneurysm. High blood pressure can also burst an aneurysm. So say you have an aneurysm that already exists. So you have this bulging, weakened area of a vessel that, that pulses every time a pulse of blood goes through it. If you have that weakened area, and you continue to send high-pressure blood through it, it can cause a rupture of that aneurysm. So again, you would get, if it is in the brain, um, a hemorrhagic stroke. <clears throat> okay, as we mentioned, all sorts of effects on the heart. Uh, congestive heart failure, particularly left-sided. Um, cardiovascular disease, uh, developing atherosclerosis, <laughs> so going through the spectrum of angina to myocardial infarction. Uh, damage to the kidneys, we hammered on that a few times. Uh, through the nephrosclerosis, and as we know, if you damage blood vessels to the kidneys, hypertension gets worse and worse and worse. Okay, (laughs) back to some predisposing factors before we move on. Um, Of course, the likelihood this is gonna occur increases as you get older. You basically have had more time to accumulate damage, uh, so the blood vessels tend to get uh, stiffer, and you tend to get higher blood pressure as you age. men tend to be affected um, more often and more severely by hypertension than women. And that, um, that di- difference is especially prominent uh, when, while the women are, st- are um, premenopausal. So I think we discussed this la- before. If not, I'll reiterate um, that, that uh, women that, are, uh, that still have their menstrual cycle, um, we think it's due to the presence of estrogen that kind of gets, you know, usually gets the blame when we're talking about this kind of relationship. Um, estrogen has a cardioprotective effect. Um, women premenopausal, uh, for example, have a much uh, lesser incidence of, um, of cardiovascular disease compared to men, okay, of, of heart attacks. But that relationship evens up really quickly after women hit menopause. So they lose that protective effect uh, when they stop producing estrogen, and all of a sudden their rates of hypertension, and cardiovascular disease jump up to similar to men. Interestingly, um, there is no increased uh, protective effect uh, if somebody is on hormone replacement therapy, which is strange, but um, so it's not just the estrogen. We don't exactly know why, but that relationship (coughs) definitely does exist, okay? Um, There are, of course, genetic factors. All right, there. You know, um, again, this is one of those multifactorial things. It's not a gene that's heritable. That's you know, if mom had it, you're going to have it. You have increased risk. It runs in gene pools. There's all sorts of genes that contribute to potential risks for this stuff. Okay, so those two exist. It certainly does not mean that you are doomed to hypertension, doomed to cardiovascular disease if relatives have it. It just means that you maybe should take better care, right? be aware because. Are at an increased risk okay other modifiable factors so when you mentioned um, uh, high sodium diets uh, earlier which is uh, quite common in, uh, in Western society in particular um, so it's something that uh, it's, you know it's used as a preservative it's used in everything so uh, decreasing that can be helpful um, cutting back on the alcohol um, stopping smoking uh, and managing obesity so obesity by itself Independent of anything relating to diet or being sedentary or anything else, obesity alone is a risk factor for hypertension. So that means that somebody is obese and they drop some weights, you know, however they choose to do that, whatever diet you want to pick, whatever exercise you want to do, it ultimately doesn't really matter that much. Dropping some weights by itself can, can be, have a protective effect, so it's beneficial. Okay, so a bunch of reasons why you want to encourage your patients to start cleaning up the, the, uh, the lifestyle stuff, and diet and exercise. And then the last one, of course, <clears throat> prolonged and recurrent stress. That's an easy one, right? Just don't be stressed. Case closed. Good luck with that, right? A week before exams. Anyway, the point is there is absolutely a relationship there. Um, it, it, um, how, you, how the people manage it is going to be very much individual. It could, it be, it could be exercise. There's you know, demonstrated effects on, on stress management. It could be therapy. It could be meditation, yoga, uh, walking your dog, whatever. It doesn't matter. Wh- whatever works for that person works for that person. So um, there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all kind of fix for this, uh, but it is, it is really, really essential. Okay. Um, Early stages of high blood pressure uh, are often pretty asymptomatic or they don't uh, there's not really any real significant signs early on or if there are it's pretty vague because this develops generally pretty slowly over time. Um, The person might feel fatigue or malaise but who doesn't from time to time Um, and as we've seen there's a pile of different disorders that can cause that. Um, Sometimes people will uh, have an occipital headache. So where's that? Back of the skull, good. Uh, Particularly in the morning. There are other things that can cause that as well. Uh, But that is sometimes the hallmark of developing hypertension. Um, Again, as I mentioned, uh, because this is usually multifactorial, uh, attacking a bunch of different, uh, uh, different things all at once can be beneficial for management. Those changes in lifestyle, the management of the exercise, uh, or lack thereof, the management of the diet, reducing the stress, and of course, medication. So as I've been saying, getting on this early is important because it tends to snowball. Uh, so we've, we've talked briefly about some, some of the classes of drugs that might be used. The two big ones uh, would be a diuretic uh, or ACE inhibitors. And there are a number of different kinds of diuretics and how they work and where they work, and that's not really the focus of this class. Uh, but again, broadly, diuretic is going to make someone pee more, offload fluid from the body, decrease blood volume, decrease blood pressure. And we know what an ACE inhibitor does. It inhibits ACE. <laughs> it, it, uh, it impairs the, uh, the conversion of angiotensin one to angiotensin two, so it impairs that increase in blood pressure. Okay, let's take a break now until 20 after, and then we'll uh, get back and talk about atherosclerosis. Okay, here we go. So, we have talked about this next topic before, just in different locations. All right? We've talked about this at, at length. So, atherosclerosis we know is the deposition of fatty plaques, atheromas, on the inner wall on the inner lining of the arteries, right? So, broadly what, what causes this? Why do the fatty plaques get deposited on uh, inside the vessels? uh... You have an excuse. (laughs) Damage, (laughs) inflammatory damage. Okay, damage to the inner lining of blood vessels, to the damage to the tunica intima. So that's why it's linked to uh, um, sedentary lifestyle and poor diets and Uh, diabetes and smoking and a pile of other things okay it's damaged the inner lining of blood vessels the body as a response lays down fat which includes cholesterol and includes proteins and some platelets and a bunch of other stuff that it uses to patch up this uh, the inner lining of blood vessels and it occupies space and it starts narrowing the vessels so we talked about this mostly in the context of the heart right because if you narrow the blood vessels in the heart then you are uh, effectively decreasing the lumen available of those blood vessels to deliver blood to the heart tissue. And in the short term or kind of along that that way, we generally see things like angina because angina means that you have a partially decreased blood flow to the heart and it's exertional. So when you start to exert yourself, you increase the demand of the heart. All of a sudden, the blood vessels that are partially occluded can't meet that demand and you get ischemic pain. The heart muscle is not getting enough blood flow and it hurts the person who experiences chest pain. In the, these, uh, the more significant version of that, you now are not only having a partial occlusion but you have a complete occlusion. So the, the atheromas just continue growing in, inwards until it completely close off the lumen of that vessel. Now you have a complete infarction of heart tissue and you have damage and, and necrosis and all the consequences that we talked about. Now. If somebody has a history of angina, or somebody has a history of a heart attack, what else are they probably gonna be at risk for? Okay, but outside the heart. You're right, you're, you're right. There's long-term consequences of having, those th- of having those things like heart failure, but we've been talking about the, 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 those things as they are the consequence of, of atherosclerosis, to the coronary vessels that supply the heart. So is atherosclerosis specific to coronary vessels? Of course not. All right? If you have diabetes, if you smoke, if you have a crappy diet, if you don't exercise, if you do all those things, why would you expect that the only vessels that are going to start getting clogged up with plaques are the ones that supply the heart? You shouldn't, because that's not how it works. What other vessels is going to affect? Well, where else do you have arteries? Exactly, everywhere, okay? So again, that's why people that that have uh, heart disease are at risk for things like occlusive stroke. That's also why people that have heart disease are going to have, probably, with atherosclerosis to other vessels all throughout the body, maybe inadequate blood flow to certain organs. Maybe like kidneys, and that might contribute to high blood pressure. Or maybe to, let's pick uh, the extremities. Okay, so with peripheral vascular disease, the periphery means the limbs, okay? And it can affect both upper and lower limbs, but it's most typically uh, prevalent in the lower limbs. So we're talking about the aorta, right? The aorta, as it descends through the abdomen, breaks off into the iliac arteries, and then narrows into, you know, arteries that distribute themselves to the legs. So the question in the heart is, what happens to the heart when you narrow the blood vessels due to atherosclerosis? Well, we know, okay? angina heart attack now what happens if you narrow blood vessels to the lid to the limbs the legs so is this going to happen overnight is it going to is it going to see you wake up one day and all of a sudden there's boom no no blood flow to the legs no it's going to develop over time okay these are big vessels much bigger than the coronary vessels so they're going to start narrowing progressively over time so what's the point the point is as you narrow those blood vessels, you're decreasing the available diameter of those vessels to be able to deliver blood to those limbs. So why do tissues need blood? To, receive oxygen and nutrients. to get oxygen and nutrients, exactly. So what happens to tissues if they don't get oxygen and nutrients like they want? They are yeah, they are relatively ischemic and <coughs> their function. Will decline so how does that manifest in something like a leg well what are the what cells are we talking about okay let's talk let's take a few what about the skin what happens? yeah what happens to the skin if it is chronically for a prolonged period of time not getting sufficient blood delivery to it what's the quality of the skin gonna be like <coughs> poor exactly Excuse me. Yeah, it's going to look dry and flaky and a little shiny. Okay, What's the color of the limb going to look like? Not not purple. Purple would be more if there's decreased venous drainage, so you get pooling of blood. Remember, this is a problem of distribution. This is a problem of not enough blood, too. So what happens if there's not enough blood, too? It's going to look pale. Exactly, pallor. Good. So you've got these pale. Poor quality skin. Uh, what else does skin normally do? Especially, I think uh, males. Hair. Makes hair, exactly. Hair is a protein. Okay, it's made of mostly keratin. So, what do, you, what do cells need to do to make hair? <coughs> well, they need nutrients, they need energy, they need oxygen. And if they're not getting those resources, they're not doing their job properly. So, the legs may look hairless. So you've got these pale, hard, poor quality skin, hairless limbs, all right? How would you confirm that? How would you get, I mean, if, if, it, if it, uh, the appearance of it, you weren't quite sure, what kind of quick, easy clinical tests that you've already learned could you do to, to maybe uh, further your suspicion that it's poor delivery? You could poke it, but well, what, what, what would you see? What are you poking? Good cap refill, exactly right. So you squeeze, you squeeze the nail bed, and normally, if you release, you should get a, a, it. It blanches and then it quickly refills with with. It looks pink again. It would look. It would happen more slowly. Okay. You could also feel for a pulse. All right. What are the peripheral pulses you've learned to do in the legs? Okay. I'm thinking farther down. The dorsalis pedis, right? I pause this for a second and the uh, the posterior tibial good exactly so um, all those things would indicate (coughs) chronically decreased blood supply now you can do more accurate clinical tests you can do things like um, Doppler ultrasound um, or, or arteriography arteriography is same as the arteriography that we saw in the coronary vessels it just is in a different location you're, you're analyzing blood flow through them so <clears throat> now what other tissues do we have in the limbs other than skin right we got a lot of muscle perfect so what happens if you decrease blood supply to muscle muscle doesn't work properly okay yeah eventually yeah so so when this person is going to is going to experience that is typically, it's like, the the analogy here is it's similar to what happens in angina, right? You have a partial occlusion, and when does a person with angina feel chest pain? Uh, That's what it might feel like, but when does somebody with angina feel chest pain? With exertion, exactly, when there's increased demand on the tissue. So you have increased demand, so say the person climbs a flight of stairs, or they start running across the parking lot, or they do something that requires increased blood flow to the limbs. What does it feel like? Pain, right? Okay? It's this burning, aching, ischemic pain, okay? It's called intermittent claudication, right there, okay? It's, it's exertional ischemic pain of the limbs uh, intermittently due to that ischemia, okay? Um, you might get uh, numbness and tingling, okay? Um, the, uh, the peripheral nerves have these tiny little blood vessels called vasa nervorum that supply them. And if you have narrowing blood vessels, you're also gonna have narrowing tiny blood vessels. They actually tend to get affected first. Uh, and you get peripheral neuropathy, numbness and tingling in the legs and feet, okay? <laughs> so. I uh, said so the appearance, again, the, the skin would look pale or maybe even cyanotic, the skin would be dry, poor quality, hairless. Toenails, right, toenails, That's kind of like the skin, or sorry, excuse me, it's kind of like the hair discussion again, uh, it's mostly made of keratin, which is a protein which is, uh, takes energy and resources to build. And so the, sk- the toenails are gonna look um, thin, or sorry, excuse me, thick, um, cracked, maybe warped, uh, look uh, irregular okay so poor quality toenails all those things that indicate that there's been a chronic impairment of blood flow to those tissues so the uh, what would somebody with with those kinds of things have to do well the exact same things you would that you would describe for somebody that's dealing with atherosclerosis anywhere else in the body right? it's no difference what I was saying earlier if somebody has a history of heart disease the likelihood is they're developing this kind of thing elsewhere and you gotta be concerned about that. So manage the blood glucose, manage the weight, manage the diet. Um, uh, if they're prone to clotting, they might be on anticoagulant meds, obviously quit smoking, increase exercise um, to, the, you know, to, the, to the extent that they can, those kinds of things. Now the long-term consequence here is if you, if you cause a complete occlusion to the vessels that supply the heart, right? What happens? The heart tissue can die. What happens if you have the same thing in the limbs? That tissue can die, exactly. Okay? So if that occurs, then you're gonna see some of the complications that, that arise with these patients. So you're talking about gangrene and amputations. Okay? And that's, it's fairly common with uh, long-standing, poorly managed diabetics, for example. Okay. Um, as a side note, <laughs> if somebody has this going on, they know they have it going on, and they want to increase the blood perfusion to their limbs, their their best bet is going to be to have the legs down. Okay, um, a dependent position means dependent on gravity. Remember that blood is a liquid; liquid follows gravity, and so it's going to be easier to get blood to a limb if it's down. So, if the person is lying with their legs elevated, for example, their peripheral symptoms are going to be exacerbated because it's just even that much harder to deliver sufficient blood to the tissue. <coughs> Any questions? All right, I'm gonna finish the rest of this before I lose my voice again. <laughs> Next is aneurysms. I was talking with this briefly earlier, right? So an aneurysm is you have a blood vessel, okay? Has regular three layers. It's got the tunica intima, the externa, and in between that muscular media, okay? An aneurysm is a weakening of the tunica media, the muscular layer of the artery. So. Weakening, so instead of a, a good solid uh, elastic wall, you're going to have this bulging region where it, it weakens and it bulges outward. And because you have pulses of blood traveling through this vessel, every time you have a pulse of blood, so increased pressure, that weakened area is going to bulge. It's going to bulge outward. So there's a few different kinds of, of uh, aneurysms based on the shape. I'm going to skip forward here. Uh, What I just drew here is a saccular aneurysm. Looks like a sac, right? It's bulging on one side. You can also have a fusiform uh, aneurysm, where it bulges circumferentially, so all the way around the circumference of a vessel, right? Like this, instead of just bulging out to one side, Okay. Um, You can also have (laughs) a dissecting aneurysm. So the way to describe that would be Uh, This time I have to draw your, not only tunica media, the muscle layer, but also I'm going to draw in blue the tunica intima, again the inner layer that gets damaged when we have all the cardiovascular disease we were talking about a second ago. So in uh, in a dissecting aneurysm, you have an aneurysm, so there's a weakening of the wall, so muscle layer bulges out, and with it goes the tunica intima. Now in a, I'll just draw a second black there. Okay. Now in a dissecting aneurysm, the dissection part comes in where uh, not only do you have this bulge, but you now have a tear of the tunica intima. So it tears, and the problem there is that blood, as it's flowing through this vessel, can get in between the tunica intima and the tunica media and it can peel it apart so blood flows in here and it peels the tunica intima away from the tunica media and it can start spreading downward along that uh that artery causing significant damage and inflammation uh, weakening uh, and depending on where the artery is it can cause a really significant bleed okay (laughs) so um we know that it's a weakening in the wall. What causes it? Well, shockingly, damage to blood vessels like atherosclerosis are near the top of the list for, uh, for causing this weakening in the first place. So not only do the things that cause atherosclerosis <laughs> cause fatty plaque buildup, but they also cause the weakening of the walls and uh, potential defects like this as well, which as we said earlier, if you have one of these weakenings, an aneurysm, it's vulnerable to rupture, because it's a weak spot. So if you have high blood pressure, that's the biggest risk that we know of that could potentially rupture these and cause a um, a catastrophic bleed. It can also occur after trauma, so direct trauma uh, to a blood vessel. Uh, It can occur with uh, certain infections. Uh, Syphilis is one of them. Uh, Just After you have syphilis infection, it predisposes you to aneurysm. Uh, and certain congenital defects. So some people are born with uh, increased predisposition to develop aneurysms. Now, aneurysms can happen anywhere in the body, okay? They can be to to any vessel anywhere. Um, In Patho2, we'll talk about a a certain uh, type of aneurysm uh, in the brain. Okay, so there are certain places in the body, especially in the, in the vasculature, the cerebral vasculature, where they're particularly prone to having weak spots and causing uh, uh, aneurysms. Now, <coughs> the effect of this is going to depend on where it occurs in the body, right, you're gonna know, have an entirely different problem if you have it in the brain versus if you ha- have it in the aorta versus you ha- if you have it in one of your extremities, and all those are, are plausible places. <clears throat> Oftentimes, there are no clinical signs of this or very minimal clinical signs of this. Okay? For example, in the brain, uh, there are many cases where um, there are no signs at all of a developing aneurysm. Maybe a mild headache, maybe some neurological stuff if it bulges and pushes against something, maybe some visual symptoms sometimes, but sometimes absolutely nothing. Okay? Sometimes it's found incidentally, there's somebody gets imaging done uh, for some other reason, and they find an aneurysm that they had no idea was there, they weren't even looking for. Okay. Um, now, in, uh, in some cases, you could understandably have no signs or symptoms at all. Say so you have high blood pressure, aneurysm bursts with no warning sign at all. So it can be catastrophic with no warning. Yeah. Uh, can it burst if you don't have high blood pressure? Uh, yeah, it still can. So t- you're just at a greater risk if, if the blood pressure is, is continuously high. And is one more serious than the other that <coughs> of aneurysms? Or? Um, not necessarily, no. It, it's, it's severity uh, overall is going to be based more on location. Okay, so if it's again, if again, for example, in the brain, you're at risk for a hemorrhagic stroke, which is obviously potentially catastrophic. Um, here, the, 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 the slides here are mostly referring to an aortic aneurysm, which for another reason is also gonna be potentially catastrophic. So let's, let's talk about this, okay? Um, <laughs> so an aortic aneurysm, you'll, you'll classify it based on what part of the aorta is being affected. So it could be in the arch of the aorta, as it arches up from the heart, or it can be in the descending aorta, so in the thoracic region, or down in the abdominal region. Now the most typical places to develop any aneurysms are at what are called bifurcations, which means a vessel splits. Okay, so a vessel splits and that tends to be a weak point, which is why there's particular spots in the brain where there's most often aneurysms, because it's in this uh, particular spot called the circle of willis, where there's all sorts of bifurcations. But in the case of the abdominal uh, aorta, it's most typically down at the bottom. So it's basically where that uh, abdominal aorta is gonna bifurcate into the two common iliac arteries. Okay, so this. Is there a guarantee that somebody with a, it's called AAA, Abdominal Aortic Aneurysm, somebody has a AAA, are they going to feel, are they going to have clinical signs or symptoms? Maybe, maybe not, it depends. It depends on the size, okay? So, um, can, you, uh, can you imagine what some of the signs of that might be? Something kidney related? Okay. Uh, it's a good guess, but no, it's, I'm thinking more local. Abdominal pain, maybe, or low back pain, oh, okay. low back pain. Exactly, okay? <clears throat> so sometimes that's the only sign, <laughs> all right? Um, sometimes, if it's large especially, the person might feel it as a pulsating mass. So with, the, with, their, uh, basically with their pulse, they'll feel this kind of pulsating in their abdomen. Um, if you were to suspect something like this, uh, you can palpate them. Have you, have you learned how in, uh, in assessment? Good, um, and if you it, So if you auscultate with the, with the bell of your stethoscope, you'll hear a bruit. if it's one of these, it'll be a significant one. You have r- significant turbulent blood flow as it's passing through that vessel. Good, okay? Now, uh, again, the significance of these is gonna very much depend on the location and one of these guys, uh, what would you expect the consequence would be if this were to rupture? Yeah. Like that, right? Because, even, honestly, even if you were in a hospital and that thing ruptured, the likely, if you, even if you were prepped for surgery, the likelihood is that it's so significant, the bleed would be so catastrophic so fast that, that your chance of survival is, is pretty much nil. It okay? Actually in the seven years that Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, it, it absolutely happens. So you do you have surgery, can you find one? Yes. So so that so the so, so the answer is yes, <coughs> the, the the fix is exclusively surgical. Okay, you basically the surgery is I'm I'm uh, making simplifying it, but basically you go in and you reinforce the aorta with uh, essentially a mesh. Okay, but um, the question is when. So it depends on size. So there's a there's a um, measurement by which you know if it's bigger than this amount then it's surgical, uh, if it's less than, it's watch and wait. If it's so, if it's beyond, I can't remember the measurements, if it's, if it's X number of centimeters across, then it's emergent surgery. So it really does depend on the size. Okay, so prior to that, confirmation is gonna be uh, imaging, of course. Um, ultrasound is a, is a good way to see this. You would see, you would see the, uh, the vessel uh, enlargement with ultrasound pretty easily. Um, You would see it also, of course, with your 3D imaging, like CT or MRI. Um, You can also sometimes catch these on x-ray. I wouldn't count on it, but you can sometimes. If there's um, atherosclerosis, which there often is, you can sometimes see a calcification of the aorta. So here, Yeah. The arrows make it obvious, right? But if you think of the, the diameter of what the aorta is supposed to be, okay? Is, this is, it's pretty big, right? This is, it's wider than the entire diameter of the spine. So you can see the partly calcified kind of border of it there and you see it bulging outwards. So that'd be a, a good AAA. Um, take a look, I'm sure we can find others. That's one, that's a, that's a different view obviously. It's bulging forward uh that is enormous. okay so again, theres there's a huge spectrum of how big these things can be and again the the um, how big they are is going to determine how quickly they're going for surgery. <coughs> um, when I was in uh, hospital for my last arm surgery, um, the, the guy who was sitting in the waiting room next to me was chatting me up and asked him why I was there, blah, 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 as you do, and uh, and I asked him why he was there, and he said he had um, a huge aneurysm in his brain, Uh, but he had no signs whatsoever, nothing, not a headache, not neurological, nothing. Uh, Basically, they they were doing, they did an MRI for something else. I think they were, I think he said they were checking maybe for um, multiple sclerosis or something like that. And they did an MRI, and they found this massive aneurysm, and he was booked in for surgery within a couple of days. So it's often. No, not really. That's, that's it. I, I understand why it would go there. So um, <laughs> there, people think this all the time, right? You think that, well, why don't we just MRI everybody every year? The problem is you're going to have so many false positives. You're going to have so many findings that are inconsequential that, um, quite frankly, it does come down to resources, and it's just not feasible. It's just really not feasible. Would you catch things that you would otherwise not see, or you'd catch way earlier? Yeah, you would definitely. If you, catch, if you cast a wide enough net, you would catch that kind of stuff, but it's not practical to, to do that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. My um, grandmother, my dad's mom, she has a few times when she's playing and I think she's having a dinner and she's just, just right up there. And no warning, no... No nothing. Yep. She's literally sitting at the table her. <laughs> Fair like enough. In mid like... Sorry to hear that, but, but it, it's, yeah. uh, it, it does happen, right? <laughs> so, <clears throat> now, let's say that you do find this. Symptoms are not whatever, the, it gets found on imaging, you know it's there. What do you do in the meantime? Well, if it's going to be s- surgical, the recommendation is to do everything you can to manage blood pressure. Okay, so that could be that's going to probably include antihypertensive meds, and that's going to include on a spectrum everything from don't lift heavy things to don't exercise to here's some laxatives so you don't have to strain yourself when you go to the bathroom because it could be that serious that even that that what seems like inconsequential amount of increase in intraabdominal pressure could be enough to burst an aneurysm. So um those are the kinds so of things. Like, <laughs> <laughs> is he <there>? no <laughs> dead? <kidding. laughs> anyway. Uh okay, <coughs> any questions about aneurysms? All right. Sorry, what is it called when it <coughs> um, dislodges? Is it just a hemorrhage? I'm like sorry? When it, if when it bursts, it be, yeah. yeah, it'd be just be it'd be a, a hemorrhage. A hemorrhage? Yeah. And then whatever it's <coughs> Exactly. So, if it's in the brain, it'd be a hemorrhagic stroke. If it were in the periphery, it'd be you'd have local ischemia to whatever. If it's in the abdomen, it's gonna it's gonna be a massive internal hemorrhage. So, if the one that's from the aorta yeah. hemorrhages, what is it called? Death. <laughs> <laughs> it'd, be called, it it'd be called it'd be called a ruptured and, uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm. Oh, okay. okay. Last couple topics, pretty straight, straightforward ones. A <coughs> couple of venous disorders. <coughs> Start off with varicose veins. <coughs> uh, varicose veins are, uh, we've probably all seen them before. <coughs> all right, that's an okay picture. All right, what they are is superficial, um, dilated, uh, engorged, torturous, so zigzaggy uh, veins. Okay, they may may or may not be painful, depending on the case. Um, as a side note, uh, OHIP pays for treatment if they're painful, so weirdly, a lot of people's varicose veins are painful. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously, um, sometimes people do, but no, they, they often can be painful. Um, so let's talk about what they are first, right? <clears throat> Um, they are veins that have incompetent valves. So remember that veins are a low pressure blood uh, uh, venous system. Uh, so uh, blood flow is working its way slowly under low pressure back towards the heart. We normally rely upon the muscle pump and the, um, and the respiratory pump and one-way valves in the veins to milk our blood back towards the heart. <coughs> so <clears throat> if you have veins uh, that have uh, one-way valves that are incompetent, they're leaky, then you're gonna get pooling of blood. So it's going to stay sitting in those veins, they're going to get dilated, and gorged, and if they happen to be superficial, they're going to be visible uh, on the, uh, just underneath the skin. Uh, there are a few ways, um, a few kind of surgical fixes. There's um, laser, there's stripping, there's cauterization, there's a bunch of different methods depending on, uh, on who you ask. Okay. <coughs> okay, so let's talk about risk factors. Who gets these? Okay, there are. <laughs> are you putting up a hand? Okay. Obesity. Yep. So increased increased BMI. Good. Obesity. Elderly. Elderly. It happens more often as you get older, as everything gets weaker. There are. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So that's this. Parity. Right. That's, have you ever seen that term before? Parity? Uh, so gravidity, so, uh, what is it, gravid uterus? means it's a pregnant uterus, right? Don't and like, sorry, I would say don't like, um, whether the people put on the internet and Like, like, when can, um, <laughs> sorry. It's okay. And, like, pilots get a lot to do with the pressure. Uh, yeah, it has something to do with the pressure, but it also, yeah, as okay. far as planes go, it has something to do with uh, with passengers are at risk, right? For, it has to do with uh, prolonged periods of time of immobility. So you're sitting, Sentry. you're not moving, and uh, and blood pools. People with <coughs> exactly, but also people that stand on their feet all day long, okay. right? So because the because the the, the you get the gra- the effect of gravity and blood pools down low. So uh, go back to pregnancy. So parity, uh, the more times that you are pregnant, <coughs> absolutely increased risk and the more times you have uh, delivered, increased risk, because the nature of going through full-term pregnancy and carrying that weight and decreased venous return and the delivery of a baby that involves a lot of pressure and pushing those kinds of things is increased risk for a bunch of things, including this. Uh, What else? There are, of course, genetic links, so there is familial tendency for this. We said, we we hit a lot of the big ones, right? So um, people that are uh, sedentary, people that are on their feet all day long, Uh, weightlifting has been associated with it too, so uh, increased, repeatedly increased pressures, keep the decreased venous return. So there are a lot of things that can do this. Um, Now, if somebody has them, um, they may or may not seek treatment, and there's a few different uh, treatment methods for it. Um, In the meantime, Minimizing your risk of, of exacerbating them by uh, increasing venous returns, so elevating the legs, right, getting muscle activity going to, to drain fluid from the legs. Uh, often people will use uh, compression stockings, right, compression stockings to, to decrease the pooling of blood in the extremities. Um, try not to wear tight clothing, especially around the waist. Um, and try to avoid crossing your legs when you sit all compressing superficial veins and decreasing venous return. I saw a few people uncross their legs. Yeah. Okay. All right. Straightforward enough? Yeah. <laughs> 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 all right. Uh, similar to the spider I think it's like Similar. All right. A <laughs> couple more terms <clears throat> Thrombophlebitis and phlebothrombosis. Sounds similar, kind of related. They both involve thrombus, right? Clot formation in veins. So let's talk about phlebothrombosis first. Phlebothrombosis is a thrombus is forming, so a clot is forming in a vein spontaneously. This happens all the time. Uh, There are a few risk factors for this. One is endothelial injury, which means any kind of damage to the inner lining of blood vessels. So run through the risk of all the same risk factors we talked about for the endothelial injury for the arterial side, same thing applies over here. Um, also, um, blood stasis. So this is why um, uh, deep vein thromboses, for example, most often happen in the legs, because uh, again, you have venous stasis, so anytime you slow down blood flow, it's more likely to clot. And so the lower <laughs> extremities in particular, where blood pools, uh, is at a much greater risk for, uh, for clotting. All right, um, that again means to decrease that risk. Again, things like compression stockings, things like you know elevating the legs if you're known to be a- at risk for these things, um, physical activity, increased venous return, all those are important for preventing clots. There are genetic links here too, right? Some people are just clot formers, okay? Some people are, pr- are prone to, uh, to, f- to forming clots. So if that's the case, and they have a history of this, their likelihood is they're gonna be on long-term anticoagulant medication to decrease further risk, okay? So again, that's your kind of spontaneous flebothrombosis, that's quite common. Um, thrombophlebitis, the itis implies inflammation. Uh, here is something that can happen when there is direct insult to a uh, to a vein. Uh, the, the common example used is an IV site. So. Uh, you, uh, you phlebotomy, or you insert an IV, uh, and now it's something that's caused uh, inflammatory damage as it's penetrated the vein, and a clot can form around the, uh, the site of the IV insertion. Okay, so um, <laughs> as these things develop, there may or may not be pain. A, thrombophla- uh, a thrombophlebitis is more likely to have um, uh, imminent signs, like pain, uh, but uh, an emergent like so, sorry a, a developing deep vein thrombosis can definitely eventually become painful although in the early stages it might have no signs at all but once it is symptomatic it's going to be this deep aching maybe burning pain often in the calf <laughs> most common place for it to happen is in uh, the popliteal vein so right behind the knee or in the deep veins of the calf so in that case you might have a redness or a swelling or a tenderness in uh, in the calf, so if you were to touch it, it would feel warm and it would hurt because there's inflammation associated with it. Also, because it's a, a clot that's formed, a clot is occupying space, and so it's gonna de- further decrease or diminish the, the drainage through that vein, which means you might see edema below the site of the clot. Okay, <clears throat> The obvious, um, or should be obvious, hopefully at this point, because uh, we talked about it before, uh, potential complication of this is a pulmonary embolism. Okay, so let's go through the anatomy of this again. You have a clot in a deep vein in the leg, okay? A piece of the clot breaks off. What is that called? When a piece breaks off a clot, it is a, an embolus, okay? A thromboembolus. So it is now a free moving piece of clot that's moving through a blood vessel. So pretend you are that clot and follow it along the root to the veins from the leg. You're eventually going to work your way into the inferior vena cava, right? And then into the right atrium, and then into the right ventricle, and then at the pulmonary trunk, into the lungs. So it's going to travel until it gets through smaller and smaller and smaller blood vessels until it gets stuck. That's what, you, what that's called is a pulmonary embolism, okay? Which means that it's occluding blood flow from getting to a particular part of the lungs. So that blood is not going to get oxygenated. Uh, and depending on how, what part of the lungs uh, are being occluded, the severity could range from not feeling it at all to sudden death, depending on what, what exact pulmonary artery, how big it is, where it's supplying, uh, and it, its blockage. So we'll talk about that more um, in Patho 2. I said that a lot today. Um, in the meantime, uh, again, that's the obvious, the the, uh, the big serious complication. Actually, as a side note, is it possible for uh, for a thromboembolus that breaks off from a, a deep vein thrombosis to cause a stroke? Right, right. It's not. How, what pathway would it take to get to the brain? it would have to go all the way through the vessels of the lungs, through the tiny little capillaries, which makes no sense because if it's, gonna, if it's small enough to work its way through a capillary, it's not big enough to go to the left side of the heart and up to the brain and cause a blockage. Okay? So um, a, an occlusive stroke from a thromboembolus is not going to land in the cerebrovasculature from a deep vein thrombosis. The risk is the lungs. Make sense? Okay. We were talked last week about how you can get an occlusive stroke from a thromboembolus that forms in the left ventricle, right. If you have uh, a dysrhythmia of the heart that makes it so that the heart can't fully eject blood and blood pools, it forms clot. Piece of the clot breaks off and now it can leave through the aorta. It can land anywhere in the uh, in the systemic vasculature, uh, including the, the brain because the the vessels that supply the brain are the first ones that branch off the aorta. Okay. So how do you prevent this? Of course. Um, It prevents the uh, clots forming in the first place. Uh, That means regular exercise, increasing venous return, elevating the legs to increase venous return, especially if you, say, are on your feet all day long, uh, something like that where you start to get edema, swelling in the legs. Uh, Then you want to spend some time with your legs up and pumping the the calves to drain that that venous venous blood and the accumulated edema back towards the rest of the body. uh, uh, compression stockings can be helpful as well to prevent edema and uh, if you're a known clot former anticoagulants plus surgical intervention if there's a clot that's found so the di- diagnosis for this is usually going to be ultrasound if it's suspected you'll do a uh, um, uh, ultrasound exam of the of, of wherever is affected usually the lower limbs uh, and if it, they find it then the will surgically remove it questions all right last topic shock so there's a bunch of slides on shock, but there's no definition. What's shock? That's good. Um, yeah. So most most forms of shock are going to involve uh, decline in blood pressure, uh, usually due to a whole bunch of vasodilation, in most cases. Uh, but that still doesn't necessarily tell me what's happening in the body. So what's the consequence of having Let's say in that example, a massive decline in blood pressure. <coughs> um, I was going to say why shock occurs. OK, so there's a bunch of different reasons. We'll get to that shortly. But what's the consequence? What if I, what if I say right now your blood pressure is going to tank? It just it just goes through the floor, way down. You, you could die, absolutely. But why would you, why would you die? Your body is going to shut down. Good. And why would it shut down? That's the body, that's what the body's gonna try to do to respond, you're absolutely right. But wh- again, it's, it's so simple that we're skipping over it, right? Wow. So why would your body try to try to do that? Why would your body redistribute blood to try to get to the organs? Right. Because if you don't deliver blood to the organs, you will die, okay? So, there's the definition, is shock is inadequate distribution of blood to the entire body. All right, so now, why? Okay, Um, I'm gonna skip this slide here because I actually prefer this next slide. Shocking, I know it's a table, (laughs) all right? So uh, here are a few of your different types of shock. And again, the common theme is inadequate distribution of blood to the entire body. A couple of these we've actually encountered before. Let's do the second one, cardiogenic. Okay, that could be the consequence of um, a heart attack. Okay, so cardiogenic shock means you can't distribute enough blood to the body because the heart's not working, All right? Say the heart has become necrotic. It can't say it's left, ventric, uh, left ventricular MI. Now the left ventricle is not able to distribute blood to the body. You now have cardiogenic shock. That makes sense. <clears throat> what about another one? Um, hypovolemic. Low volume, All right? Low blood volume. So there's a bunch of reasons this could occur. It could be due to a hemorrhage, right? a bleed, either internal or external. Um, we were talking about the, uh, the ruptured AAA, right? <coughs> the ruptured AAA, the cause of death is gonna be hypovolemic shock, because you're gonna bleed into your abdominal cavity. Okay, if you are to have a massive external bleed, same thing. Uh, if you were having a massive burn where you lose a ton of fluid, same thing. Remember that that's, uh, fluid balance is such that you know, when, if you're losing fluid from anywhere, your body's gonna try to re- redistribute it and you're gonna lose blood volume. Uh, massive dehydration <coughs> or uh, peritonitis. That's something we'll talk about again in Patho2, but it's uh, where you have either an infection or a chemical irritation of the peritoneal membrane, so the abdominal cavity and your, your body shifts fluid out of the blood vessels into the abdominal cavity. So all those cases, your blood volume tanks, so you can't distribute it to the body. The rest of them are all gonna be about decrease in blood pressure, okay? So they're uh, vasogenic, uh, which means either um, uh, there are um, neurogenic forms, <laughs> like uh, spinal cord injury, uh, or other reasons that um, you impair the, the nervous system activity to blood vessels. They massively dilate. Blood pressure tanks. You can also have <clears throat> anaphylactic shock. We've brushed on that before. Okay. What are the two major things that can kill you with anaphylactic shock? The two effects on the body. <laughs> yeah, not being able to breathe. What, why? What's the physiological effect? <laughs> Constriction of, careful, not, not vasoconstriction, no. bronchoconstriction, okay? And vasodilation, okay? So, airways close, blood vessels open. Can't get oxygen in, carbon dioxide out, can't deliver blood. <coughs> That's why we deliver epinephrine, right? Epinephrine happens to have two properties where it bronchodilates and vasoconstricts. That works out pretty nicely. (coughs) All right. And lastly, um, septic shock or endotoxic shock. We would have talked about this way, way back towards the beginning of the semester. (laughs) We are talking about bacteria and gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria. The gram-negative bacteria, the ones that stain pink on a gram stain, uh, they have those endotoxins in the wall so that if you kill a whole bunch of gram-negative bacteria, they release those endotoxins that happen to be what's called vasoactive, which means they can uh, cause changes to blood vessels. And the change they cause is vasodilation. So you know this consequence after an infection where you have this massive release of these t- endotoxins and you have a, uh, a uh, uh, massive vasodilation. So again, there's a few different mechanisms here. Either decreased blood, heart doesn't work, or blood pressure tanks all of those have the common theme of the problem is inadequate blood distribution to the entire body. Okay, (coughs) How that will manifest in any of those cases would be some combination of these. (coughs) Anxiety is is, is quite likely. Tachycardia should make sense if you have inadequate distribution of blood to the body automatically first thing we do is heart rate goes up. Try to distribute more. Person will likely be pale. They'll probably be lightheaded, right? Blood pressure's going down. They might be uh, lightheaded to the point of syncope. What's syncope? Fainting. Fainting, exactly. Blood pressure tanks, you can faint. Uh, sweating, do the uh, stress response, <clears throat> and oliguria. What's oliguria? Good, minimal amount of urine production. Makes sense. <clears throat> Body's trying to retain fluid. Okay, what we're gonna do in compensation is neurological stuff, we jack up sympathetic uh, system activity, uh, and the adrenal medulla, which means you're going to release catecholamines, epinephrine, norepinephrine, in the attempt to vasoconstrict and increase heart rate and force of contraction. We're going to set off the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. We're going to subsequently release uh, ADH. Uh, we're going to do all these things to try to increase blood pressure right, and compensation. So sometimes the compensation is adequate, and sometimes it is not. Okay. Something else to consider is <clears throat> if somebody has prolonged shock, not only are you not distributing enough blood to the cells, you're also, because the blood pressure is so low, not taking waste products away from the cells. And you're going to start accumulating hydrogen ions and get kicked into acidosis for another problem. OK? <clears throat> the significant effects, again, we, we broadly said death but I mean the reality is you're talking organ failure so you choke off blood supply to an organ it can fail uh, in you know different amounts of time depending on the organ but you can have kidney failure you can have lung failure you can have uh, you can have liver failure you can have um, uh, paralyzation of the uh, of the GI tract all sorts of other complications again just broadly remember inadequate blood distribution to the body All right, and that's it. All right, so, any questions before we go to our review? Okay.